The National Archives podcast series, A Hundred Years of the WI. Professor Maggie Andrews discusses some of the key campaigns and concerns of the Women's Institute. This talk was recorded on the 9th of June, 2016. The, the title uh, of the talk is The Acceptable Face of Feminism, which is based on, on the book. And the book is a reworking of um, two new chapters of a book that I wrote some 25, 30 25 years ago, I think I began looking at it when I was a, a young uh, postgrad. I began looking at the topic, and that's what I did my doctorate on. Um, and what I'll do, if that's okay, is sort of talk to notes and slides and what have you, and, and we'll see how we get on. So here is one of my friends, Edith Rigby. She was a suffragette whose activities included planting a bomb in the Liverpool Corn Exchange, pouring acid on the green of a local golf course, setting fire to the stands of the Blackburn Rovers Football Club. If there are young male students in this room, in the room when I mentioned this, this is the point that I lose their enthusiasm for her. Um, and they resulted in her being a guest at his, Majest his majesty's pleasure some seven times. She went on hunger strike. Um, and after she set fire to Lord Leverhulme's house and Rivington Pike, she declared from the dock, I want to ask Sir William Lever, whether he thinks his property at Rivington Pike is more valuable as one of his superfluous houses, occasionally open to the people, or as a beacon lighted to king and country to see here are some intolerable grievances for women. Um, she was a committed socialist. Amongst her friends was Keir Hardy. Of a rather different political persuasion is Lady Isabel Margerson. Um, she was uh, a member of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the um, peaceful campaigners for the suffrage. She then went over and joined Mrs. Pankhurst Lot, and indeed in 1914, she was chairing a meeting in Glasgow where Mrs. Pankhurst was arrested amongst scenes of a riot. Um, so she's quite a fun one. Uh, there are others who, both of them end up in the First World War as very avid members of the Women's Institute. Joined by Lady Denman, who if you have anything to do with the WI, you will have heard of, the wife of the ex-Governor-General of, of Australia, and indeed Grace Haddo, who's one of my favourites, an Oxford Don, a literary scholar, and who set up the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies in Sirencester. Um, and then, of course, there was Helena Orbach, who was treasurer of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. All in World War I were busy working with and for and promoting the Women's Institute movement. And when I first began looking at the topic some 30 years ago, the question that came to my mind was why and what was going on? Because the image that we have of the WI, I would argue, in contemporary world, whether it's accurate, fair, or what have you or not, is of quite, um, I suppose, part of, an, part of the establishment, quite middle class, quite staid. Um, and this is not the perspective that people had of it 100 years ago. And the more I dug, the more I thought about it. And I came to the conclusion that really the struggle to enfranchise women was a long one. It was a hard one. It took many years. But actually, the struggle to um, enable women to use their vote for the benefit of women, that was a much longer and more complicated struggle. And in the midst of that, the Women's Institute were incredibly important. Their feminism, I would argue, was rooted in women's everyday life, in women's everyday lives, in really trying to make um, give women a voice and trying to make everyday things better for them. It was about making the material circumstances of their lives better 
for rural women in the interwar period particularly, and even into the post-war period, that was often about things like housing and water. I can wax lyrical. I will wax lyrical in a minute or two about the importance of piped water in your house, uh, which was a big, big WI campaign. It was also about providing spaces within villages, cultural spaces in which women could meet with other women and enjoy themselves. Um, and to me, these sorts of things make them what I termed an acceptable... Uh, no, I used the term from a WI lady herself termed them, the acceptable face of feminism, and I very much agree with her and her definition of them. So that's the sort of ideas that I want to put to you today a little bit, talking about their history. As you may or may not know, they were formed in the First World War, and they were formed with government backing. Uh, the Board of Agriculture, through the Agricultural Organization Society, actually funded the beginnings of the WIs in 1915, and they were very much about the food crisis that there was at the time, and the WIs were to help women with cottage gardens, women with allotments, with market gardens, with farms, to help them with producing, preserving, and preparing food. And they were very much full of instruction and support and encouragement, cooperative purchasing of things and cooperative producing of them. So we find them having uh, pig and rabbit clubs, collecting herbs, running communal kitchens, um, listening to talks and demonstrations on wartime cookery, on child welfare, on crafts such as basket making and cobbling. As you may know, the inspiration for the movement comes from Canada, though I would argue that they're a very, very different organization in this country than they are in Canada. Um, a lady called Mrs. Madge Watt came over from Canada, came over from Canada to England to get away from a somewhat problematic scandal surrounding her husband's uh, suicide. She comes to Britain, she's looking for a work, for work, <coughs> and she badgers people until they allow her to set up women's institutes that she's been involved with in Canada. And they get, as we've said, originally government support, as they always had and still have in Canada. But in Britain, they became independent in 1918. To me, they are, for rural women particularly, the most important legacy of the First World War. Um, it's hard for us now, I think, to understand the huge difference that they made to these rural villages. But this is a lovely description from North Wales in 1916. They talk about... An institute was started on January the 12th, 1916, so one of the very earliest. Since then, monthly meetings have been held. Special attention has been given to arranging lectures on the cultivation of gardens for better food produce. The members, whom were about 80, and they were big, the memberships of the early institutes, are drawn from all classes, and indeed they, they absolutely always were. Um, the greater number are the wives and daughters of smallholders who, owing to their home duties, are unable to get out uh, out to work on other farms. The idea was that in the post-war era, what they would do is actually provide a sort of rural women with a broader experience, change their, change their lives in a very big way. Um, and it's hard for us to imagine these are women who lived in rural areas with no phones, no electricity, no water, no sewage, um, in homes that were fairly rudimentary. Thus we find, and they very rarely moved from their village. So thus we find the Coventry Evening Standard in 1917 talks about probably there is no woman who leads a more cramped, unattractive life than the countrywoman, which seems a little harsh, I have to say. Um, but in most villages, there are no amusements, no interests, nothing outside their little home and the garden. So 
Women, as I've said, of all ages, of all classes, joined these WIs in the early years. Predictably, the leadership was often, but not exclusively, from the middle and the landed classes. You've got actresses like Elizabeth Robbins, who um, had written a play to, to support the suffrage, who used her house as somewhere where suffragettes, after they'd been on hunger strike, could come and recover. She very busily got involved in the WI in East Sussex. She ran it, she supported it, she was involved in it for many years. But you also got in the village that I uh, live in, in Worcestershire and Pershaw, you got the dressmaker, you got uh, retired servants, you got very ordinary women who also enjoyed the WI. Some of them met in the afternoon so that women could be home to cook for their husbands in the evening. Some of them met in the evenings on the basis, as some of the early organizers said, that men could look after the home for one evening at least a month. When they became an independent organization in 1918, the WI very quickly um, picked up on lots of things that we would have, were associated then with the suffragette movement. So they chose to sing Jerusalem because that had been sung and indeed um, uh, conducted by uh, Herbert Parry at the celebration of the suffrage in 1917. They chose the colors for all their original banners and posters and what have you of green, white, and purple because those were the colors of Mrs. Pankhurst's WSPU, the biggest uh, militant suffragette movement at the time. They quite deliberately associated themselves with the struggle for women's um, vote, and they campaigned, because women only got the vote if they were over 30 in 1918, they campaigned with other women's organizations for women to go on uh, and be given the vote on the same terms as men. The meetings would be recognizable in many respects, I think, to people today. They were... Um, they had business, which was about the organization. It was about national and county campaigns. Um, they would have talks. They would have demonstrations. And those talks and demonstrations were incredibly varied. Um, so North Lee in Oxfordshire uh, covered in 1920s the use of paper patterns, cooperative buying, local history, where food comes from, um, uh, local government, women voters, sightseeing in Italy, all sorts of different things, including Jerusalem in the present time. While Clan Fair in 1919, perhaps a little more go-ahead, decided to have a talk on Bolshevism in its simplest form, which I rather like. Um, there was tea, known as the cement of the movement, and then there was half an hour at the time of dancing, of singing, of games, and almost every meeting had some sort of a competition, the best buttonhole, the most inexpensive Christmas gift. The records from the early meetings are quite fun because they demonstrate that the, not only the variety of different things that are going on, but also the variety of different engagements with them. So Funtington, for instance, in West Sussex could get 150 people where it had a social and only 30 people when it talked about making something out of nothing because that wasn't quite such fun. Um, they reached across, the early WIs, across the religious, the political divides. We had all sorts of people from different parties and from different religions. As one woman said, this is the first organization I've been able to join in the village. Everything else is got up by the church and the conservatives, and I'm a Catholic and a liberal. So that spreading across was really, really important. Um, and what it did was to limit what it engaged with, but also open out what it engaged with. Uh, it wouldn't discuss anything that was party political, Although they did want to become, and they had an um, AGM resolution, they did want to become involved in campaigns and issues 
which would you know, assist rural women in any way. So they didn't mind being controversial, just not party political. They were trying to group women together rather than separate them. They brought this huge amount, I would argue, of social change to the village. And I love this quote that comes from Ray Strach's history of the suffrage movement, the cause that she wrote in 1928, when she says, it's not too much to say the lives of country women were transformed by the coming of this organization. It brought instruction and variety just at the moment when enfranchisement and short skirts were bringing physical and mental development. It's not surprising that women of all ages and classes who worked in the suffrage movement turned their energies to this field. In a sense, what it's about is women beginning to take control of a sort of social and cultural life of the villages. Before that, it had just been the pub, which was fairly dominated by men. What they're doing is saying they have a right to leisure. They're beginning to rework ideas of domesticity and they're beginning to rework their place in rural communities. Now, that's particularly the case when they actually build a village hall, and a lot of village halls were built by the WI. Um, I rather like this is a picture of Pershaw in front of its newly opened village hall in 1921. Um, you can see the sort of layers from the lady who hasn't got a hat on, who I think is the tea lady, somewhere on the corner, to the sort of aristocrats and wealthier ones sitting in the front row. However, once they'd built that hall, it became a real hub for the, for, the, for the area. It had baby clinics, it had voluntary temporary libraries before there were the libraries that we know them today were set up. It had drama groups and choirs and working parties doing various crafts. Um, they learned how to reheal boots and do dressmaking and upholstery. All sorts of things happened there. Flower shows, whisk drives, huge big whisk drives. I've had uh, ladies described to me these enormous whisk dryers with sort of 80, 90 people of the village there and great big hands hung up, which you're competing to win. So the whisk dryers are very important, and they ran various socials. Now, those socials were sometimes for the village, but very importantly, they were run by the women. And that produced some levels of discomfort, as this rather lovely quote from 1928 from the WI magazine, Home and Country, um, makes it clear, sorry, from 1929, um, and it's written by the supposed um, husband muttering things about it. Um, and it's written in this sort of rather strange rural dialect. But he says, thought you didn't allow husbands and such heathen, and he means to the WI social. Um, and his wife responds, not to our ordinary meetings, we don't. Um, and then he, she says, but you can come if you're accompanied by a member. And his comment is not, not allowed except, not admitted except on a leash. Um, and she just laughs at him and says, if you want to take it that way, that's fine. But I think it's a really nice indication of that awareness that suddenly women running the social events for the village um, and ordinary women running them has actually challenged the way that the villages operate. Um, I have to say that throughout the 100 years of its history, for ordinary members, it has been the social side, which has obviously been the thing that they relished. It was a chance for leisure. It's a lovely image of Overbury in, in uh, Worcestershire, Gloucestershire border, WI, um, setting off on a summer outing because they did all sorts of different outings once a year, charabang outings. And this one, it's sort of on the back of a cart pulled by a tractor. But they had a day out. This was new. Uh, one woman I interviewed described how she joined her WI in Chidham, West Sussex in 1920s at the age of 14 because she liked going to folk dancing competitions and she enjoyed the fact that she was driven to them by the chairman in the chairman's Rolls-Royce. Um, it was not something that was greeted, I have to say, with unparalleled enthusiasm. 
um, in the villages. It was, it was more of a shock to people than you might imagine. Um, one man wrote to Home and Country, for instance, um, in a state of shock in 1929, signing his letter, a mere man, he complained very much about the amount of time his wife spent in the WI and explained, I mix with men, many of whom are the husbands of institute members. The things they say about the institutes are unprintable. One told me this morning that damned institute is the curse of a married man's life, which I think is a lovely sort of indication of just how threatening this sort of very female center was to the village. Women's right to leisure, to say I'll have a day off, an evening off, an afternoon off, um, is linked, I think, to a sort of shifting idea that the WI had, that housewives were skilled workers, that although rural women had very limited opportunities to earn money, they were skilled. There were some sort of uh, industries set up by the WI, the very famous Cuthbert rabbits that came and went in 1918, um, with numerous misshapen Cuthberts landing up in Lady Denman's house, unable to be sold. But they, there were some more successful ones run locally. Tice has smocks, for instance, um, Buckingham pillow lace. And those enabled women to earn some money. But more important for earning money, perhaps, was the WI markets and the market stalls, which were introduced during the First World War. This is not the best picture, perhaps, of them. Um, they were held in villages. They were held in cities. They were held in towns, Litchfield, Lewis, Chichester, places like that. They sold produce from the surrounding area. They were run on cooperative um, uh, terms. And indeed, one woman from Fishbourne in West Sussex explained to me how, in the 1950s, she had bought her very first hoover by selling produce once a week. Once a week, she would cook all day, and then the next day, take it down to the market and sell it. And this way, she saved up the money for her first Hoover. Others described how, in the 1930s, they'd saved the money um, to pay for their young daughters to go to grammar school, to have the uniform to enable them to go, which wasn't provided free, and for many um, poorer people was a real problem. The way they paid for that was by selling through the market. So they were incredibly important to them. And also, they gave the, a reminder that domestic labor, cooking, sewing, has economic value. It's really important. Society doesn't operate well without it. They campaigned, as an organization, the WI, at a national, at a county, at a village level, always about trying to improve rural women's lives. Um, at first, in a sense, one of their big tasks was to convince these newly enfranchised women in 1918, that actually politics mattered to them. It was something that concerned them, if that makes sense. Um, and for the first 40 years of the National Federation of Women's Institutes magazine, Home and Country, every month it would have a piece entitled Voters Awake, which I rather like, which described any of the bills and laws that were going through Parliament, how they affected women. It would pick it out and say, come on, this matters to you, you should care about this. Um, they also become involved in lots of local campaigns, very village centres. Chidham in West Sussex were very proud of having stopped the local bus company, raised their fares in the 1930s. Uh, Wolversley WI were very successful at getting a resident policeman in the 1950s. These were sort of quite minute tasks, but they were very important to them. They also did quite a lot of social welfare to improve women's lives in the villages alongside the politics. So in some areas, they would create a layette, which would be loaned out to new mums so they didn't have to buy it because it's actually quite expensive and not, not going to be used for very much. 
Other times they collect eggs for um, local hospitals. Most importantly, in some areas, they funded the, um, the cost of the local midwives having analgesics to give during childbirth. Because believe it or not, in the 1920s and 30s, whether you could have pain relief or not when you were in labor depended on how much money you had. If you could afford it, or if you couldn't. And it gives me the freak out, that one, actually. It's like, what? Um, so very practical, very real. They got together, they raised the money, they bought the analgesics so that they could be provided, and they campaigned for them to be, be readily available. Um, in a sense, a lot of their schemes were about health, because this is a world with no national health service, and it's a world where the health service that there was, was uh, or the provision that there was, was very often linked to men's work and skilled work and insurance for that, and women were excluded from it, with some very major problems to, to women's health, which did come through and, and was very obvious in the Second World War. Um, they were prepared to talk quite openly about issues of women's health, which once had been, I would, talk, I would see us sort of muttered about in hushed terms. So in 1922, a resolution urged more public health education to prevent the spread of venereal diseases. Quite reasonably, there were, as you may or may not know, 400,000 cases of BD um, amongst British and Commonwealth troops in the First World War. Uh, and in a world without penicillin, what happened was large numbers of these men came home and then infected their wives at the end of the conflict. And so it was a very important issue, but not one that most people discussed. And indeed, Apple Dram Institute in West Sussex didn't feel that a proposed talk on VD and public hygiene was necessary in the 1920s. It was like, no, we're not going there, just don't. Um, on the other hand, you can find 1944, Outwell, WI in Cambridgeshire did have a very um, public lecture on the dangers of uh, venereal disease given by a local nurse, perhaps somewhat sort of... Um, I suppose, important in their minds because they, with another conflict going on, they were very aware there were a lot of military bases nearby and they felt that something needed to be done about it and the spread of VD. Interestingly, Janet Courtney's unofficial history of the WI, written in 1933, which is a lovely book, um, it talks about them as a trade union of women. It talks about how, like the... Uh, trade unionist Joseph Arch, who works for um, rural laborers, had sought combination, cooperation in strength of union. She sees the WI doing exactly the same thing. She refers to the, um, as many people do by the 1930s, to the country women's parliament, which is how they describe the annual general meeting. It's a lovely image of it here and somebody speaking there. Um, it was broadcast all the highlights of it were broadcast during the day on the wireless for people to listen to at the time, the new wireless that they've got in their homes in the 20s and 30s. Um, it was covered by all the major newspapers in terms of the issues and debates and the, the resolutions that were passed. Though it has to be said, there are one or two indications that the pleasures of attending it were not entirely about being part of this great country women's parliament. So in the 1930s, there were quite a lot of complaints about the delegates who seemed to go early for lunch and come back late after lunch, burdened down with quite a lot of packages. Um, so obviously for some, it was a great shopping occasion, which, you know, they often didn't have. Notwithstanding that, I think the women did like being in this big democratic organization that they felt um, had a say on the wider cultural world of, of and political world of Britain um, in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, they 
worked with lots and lots of other women's organizations. The Women's International League for Peace and Freedom came and gathered signatures. They worked with the League of Nations Union. They worked with uh, Society for Equal Citizenship. They networked all over the place. Um, and they tried, however, to be very inclusive in terms of their politics and in terms of how they operated. And that was quite challenging. They didn't want to do anything that would upset and mean that certain people couldn't join the WI. So they never overtly supported the war effort because that would be a problem for Quakers. And they never overtly supported birth control, which was a very big issue in the 1920s and 30s, um, because that would have offended the Catholics. On the other hand, <laughs> Lady Denman, who was the National Federation of Women's Institute's chairman, was also um, head of the Birth Control Council in this country, which was widely known by everybody and did give this message, I think, to rural women that birth control was respectable, which I think was very important, and legitimate and something they could support. So it's, they, they played it very carefully, shall we say. Um, as I said, the women who joined came from the left and the right. Lloyd George's wife was in it, William Morris's daughter, uh, Neville Chamberlain's sister. They were all there in the WI um, in various different ways. Uh, the WI was critiqued on one hand. The conservative agents uh, in 1920 thought that it was organizing under all sorts of disguises in name non-party, but in truth it's manipulated by socialistically inclined women which is a lovely description of the WI, not quite the one we have in our minds now. Um, on the other hand, the National Secretary of the, of the um, National Union of Agricultural Workers reckoned that they were somehow um, about leaving things as they were and very unradical. So they were critiqued from all sides. Um, however, um, it was a liberal that was to become our institute member. Um, a lovely lady, Marjorie... Um, Maggie Wintringham. Um, she was the honorary secretary of Lindsay WI in Lincolnshire. Um, and she became the first British born. Don't do that. Take it back again. First British born woman to be elected to Parliament in 1921. Obviously, um, Nancy Astor had been uh, elected before that. She was a teacher, she was a headmistress. She'd been involved with the National Union of Women Workers, the British Temperance Association, the National Union of Suffrage, Suffrage Societies. She was on the National Federation of Women's Institutes Executive and her county executive. And then suddenly in 1921, her husband died and she was nominated to succeed him by the local Liberal Party. Um, and there seems to be some quite interesting spin that goes on around this because... Um, She's still in mourning at this point in time, and so it's agreed that she will um, attend all the sort of campaigning meetings, but she won't say anything. Other people will speak for her. She'll sit there. And it seems that the Liberal Party grandees thought this was a great spin. It would make her look like a, a, a sort of victim that they ought to all be supporting. But she was elected and re-elected in 1922, and she campaigned on many, many women's issues for reducing the voting age for women from 30 to 21, for allowing women to sit in the House of Lords that they couldn't, on equal pay she also campaigned, and on women police officers, which was a big campaign in the interwar period. Um, she helped the passing of the Criminal Law Amendment Bill to improve the legal protection for young girls. Nevertheless, it's really she was critiqued quite often um, in various different ways, but my favorite uh, of her campaigns is the one that she was involved in around housing. 
1923, uh, the the rural house, she talks about rural housing as they're redoing the laws on rural housing, and she critiqued the austerity measures of the time, which have decided that they will reduce the size of the bedrooms in three-bedroomed houses, um, and they will reduce the whole of the house, which is supposed to be for a family, and these are not families like nowadays families, these are families with six, seven children. Um, they're going to reduce it to be 850 square feet, and one of the children's bedrooms is going to be six foot by six foot ten. And so she stands up in Parliament and says that when she'd heard about this, she visualized the room in her mind. She compared it with the table in front of the Treasury bench. So that's the one you see in Parliament with the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition either side of it. And she was so interested in this, she goes down, she measures the table, and she finds out that the smallest bedroom would be half a foot less in length than the table. And therefore she asks the Minister of Housing how would it be possible for such a room, for such a bedroom, to accommodate two boys and two girls? And it's a lovely practical demonstration of, look, you know, get your heads around what it is you're doing to some other people. That table in front of you um, is bigger than the room you want their children to live, to, to, to live in. In it, I think she's hitting on a really key concern of the WI, housing and water. Um, and it was, you know, huge, huge, huge in the interwar years for rural women and working class rural women. The state of housing was absolutely appalling. And right from 1918, they'd been very determined saying that you know, the provision of sufficient supply of convenient sanitary houses is of real vital importance. And this is something they want you know, everybody to be campaigning for in the organization at local level, at national level. And indeed they do. This resolution at their AGM provides a mandate for many, many activities that operate in the years that come. Their understanding of rural housing, I think, is assisted by two things. One is that actually they have working class women on their national executive. Um, for instance, Mrs. Um, Alice Freeman, whose husband was a gardener, um, becomes a member first of her local WI, then her county federation executive, and then goes right up to the National Federation Executive Committee. She finds it somewhat intimidating, as you can imagine, to turn up at this National Federation Executive. First time, there's quite a lot of titled ladies there. And Lady Denman takes her to one side and reassures her, you'll be as much use as any one of us. Education doesn't mean a thing. We go down the village streets and see all the nice doorways, but we, know, we don't know what goes on behind them. This is what we need to know, what sort of life the village people have got, because we want to do as much as we can. Um, another way that the organization find out what life is like for the ordinary villagers is to have all sorts of um, competitions and essay writing and ways in which they can get to hear what people will say in the villages. So one, for instance, in 1930, there's a competition in home and country, an essay competition, where people are asked to write an essay, it's riveting, it sounds like being in school, doesn't it, on the problems of a lack of village water. Um, and, but what they come up with is just mind-blowing. And this is one Staffordshire housewife who explains, I've lived in this cottage for six years, and the first four and a half, we hadn't got a water on the water supply on the premises. We had to fetch it from a draw well 40 feet deep down from a cottage 70 yards away. We had to make three journeys a day, which would take about half an hour. My supply is now from a sink in the back kitchen. You will understand what a blessing it was. I guess it's just lovely because it just describes this hugely important thing. 
lack of piped water and sewage added tremendously to the burden of domestic labor on these poor rural housewives. The demand for a water supply was intrinsic to their campaigns to an improved rural housing. And they tried to get an amendment to the public health bill to say that actually you shouldn't build council houses as they were without a water supply. You would think it was obvious in 1935. They weren't successful in that one. Um, and they were surrounded by all sorts of you know, campaigns and determination. One rather naive WI member thought that if they had a lot of rummage sales, that would raise the money needed for water supplies. Wrong. Um, but by the time the Second World War comes along, they're beginning to lose patience. They've been campaigning for 20 or 30 years. And when they discover that as soon as the government wants to put an air force base or a new army camp in a rural area, suddenly there is electricity and drainage and water. They are furious. Why, a member who wrote to Home and Country says, couldn't such actions be taken for ordinary people in peacetime? I think it's a really sort of interesting um, sort of what are you doing and why don't we matter that you can do it under these circumstances and not others. Now, the Second World War certainly involved the WI once again in a huge range of activities to produce, to preserve, to prepare food. They did make jam. It is fair. They did make jam. And Cecily McCall summarizing the appeal of it in a book she wrote in 1943, I think is just wonderful in her description. She says, jam making was constructive and non-militant, if you like to look at it that way. It accorded with the best Quaker traditions of feeding blockaded nations. For those who were dietetically minded, jam contained all the most highly prized vitamins. For those who were agriculturally minded, the scheme saved a valuable crop from literally rotting on the ground. And for the belligerent, what could be more satisfying than fiercely stirring the cauldron of boiling jam and feeling that every pound took us one step further defeating history, Hitler. And I think it's a lovely description of how they felt about jam at the time. Now, they were quite preoccupied by their jam, and it has to be said they had long conversations about how they would deal with their jam if there was an invasion. And in 1940 to 41, people thought there would be an invasion at any moment in time, really. Um, they discussed it at length, um, and one enthusiastic member wrote to Home and Country and said, she had decided she keeps a, a hammer next to her pots of jam on the basis that if there, are, if there is an invasion, she'll smash the uh, pots of jam and that jam-starved Germans, we don't have jam, they don't have jam, jam-starved Germans will kill themselves by frantically eating this jam, which is mixed with, with powdered glass. I guess just a lovely you know, moment, uh, which says so much about so many of the ideas going around at the time. Um, so they did make jam. They also campaigned um, with the feminist movement for a number of other things. Most important in there is equal payment for war injuries. In the Second World War, you were compensated if you were injured in the war. If you were um, in parts of London or of Coventry or what have you, there was bombing and you lost a leg or something, you were compensated for it. However, Obviously, a male leg is worth more than a female leg. Isn't that obvious? <laughs> they, they compensated quite differently according to whether you were male or female for the loss of a leg, an arm, whatever. Um, this is mean, just horrendous, isn't it? Um, this, the WI, was one of their more successful campaigns. They campaigned very determinedly on that. Um, but they spent a lot of their time discussing in institutes, at county level, at national level, what the post-war world would be like. What were they fighting for? How would it be better? How would the new Jerusalem, in a sense, be built? They carried out surveys on housing. 
asking all sorts of questions about what would your ideal home be when you're going to rebuild these houses that have been bombed, we're going to have this new Jerusalem, how would it be? What would be acceptable levels of rent, of, of bathrooms, of WCs, of local, and local institutes wrote in with questions. There were all sorts of ideas from people. Um, they, it was incredibly popular. They liked the idea of exploring how could things be different. There was no sense in any of it that what was good enough for their mother was good enough for them. Um, it was a chance to vent pent-up feelings, I think, for many of them, as Home and Country pointed out. Um, two basic needs are emphasized in all of the replies that come in. The need for adequate water, the need for women architects and working class women to be members of the housing committees deciding what the house should be like. So they actually th uh, are saying quite basically, ask the people who are going to use the house. This would be a, a radical idea. After the war, in peacetime, the Daily Mail contacted them and got them to um, design a house with them for the 1951 Ideal Home Exhibition. The house was for a young family, and it was a semi-detached house. It looks almost like it's, it's a full one there. It was a semi-detached house. It had to comply with building regulations. It had to match the costs and rent and everything of a council house in the rural areas. And it was, um, this model was built for the Ideal Home Exhibition, which the WI absolutely poured to it. They were really excited by it. It was like a physical manifestation of their hopes and their dreams and the, um, of the world that they wanted built afterwards. And it was very modern. We all mod cons. But on the other hand, it had quite a lot of patchwork and knitted things and the crafts in there in terms of the decorations. It's a lovely, lovely combination. It was, however, an ideal. Uh, debt, shortages of skilled labor, the need to repair damaged properties meant that post-war housing was far from that ideal. And home and country continued in the post-war world to provide lots and lots of guidance about how to manage your earth closet, i.e. if you have no inside loo. Half the homes in Britain continued to have, even into the mid-1950s, no inside water. And very, very many of them had no inside loo at all. Um, even when new houses were built, they left much to be desired. And in 1956, the WI did a survey and reported that they were still building wash houses without water or without ventilation and without daylight. Uh, they were in mining villages. There were places where the residents found expensive electricity installed and nowhere to, to, to burn their concessionary coal. And that old people found there were baths upstairs and all the water had to be carried up the stairs in buckets, not exactly ideal. Um, their hopes of an improved post-war world were not restricted to housing. There was a desire that housewives should be recognized as skilled workers, equal partners with men in this new post-war world. And this was brought home, I think, very much to them when they were looking after evacuees. Um, as you may or may not know, the decision by the government to billet children, whether you wanted them or not, in rural areas on housewives was described by Margaret Cole as nationalizing hundreds and thousands of women. And the WI were quite disconcerted by this. They gathered the opinions of people who were looking after evacuees. They, gov they published it, and they spoke out for these mothers, um, who did have quite a difficult time of it, the number of evacuees you had to look after, the, the hard work of it, and the recompense you got for it was quite pathetic at a time when lots of people were earning very well or perceived to be earning very well in war industries, particularly women. 
They were furious. As they said, the planners of evacuation couldn't didn't calmly assume the housewife need not be paid for anything, for her time, for her energy, for her labor. And then they go on about, you know, they didn't say the same to the bus drivers or the farmers or the cobblers. Why is it that housewives are treated like this? And they describe the housewife as the nation's Cinderella. Um, and they talk about, quite interestingly, a feminist movement. And they say there's two sides to this feminist movement. One is equality and having that, showing that women are not inferior, showing that if they wish to, they can go to public life, they can have education. But they're very strong on this other side of the feminist movement, which they saw as being much more about recognizing that women's own traditional specific job of running a household, bringing up children, is just as important, as responsible, as much worthy of respect as women doing the kind of job that can be equally done by either sex, which they obviously saw as quite inferior. Um, and that work is as vital, if not more so. They got really quite concerned and worked up about it. And later that year, the publication of the Beveridge Report initially seemed to them to be very po positive. The Beveridge Report was the sort of plans for the national insurance and social security in the post-war world. And some were very excited it should be 1942, not 1922. Home and country proclaimed, at last, housewives have come into their own. Because Beveridge is going to put a premium on marriage, they feel, not penalize it. The fact that his wife was in the WI might have helped, but they saw this as moving to this new post-war world initially. However, they, they have a, a campaign that's very thrilled about the fact that he says, you know, there should be health insurance and a national health service for everybody, that there should be family allowances. Um, all these things they see as very, very positive. However, as the time goes on, and particularly inspired by Cecily McCall, who works at headquarters and is to stand as a Labour Member of Parliament unsuccessfully in 1945, they look at it in more detail. And they begin to feel less than totally enamoured by it. So that in 1945, there's a resolution which wants to know why, if there's sickness benefit in this new post-war world, why isn't there sickness benefit for housewives? Why won't they be paid when they're ill so that they can bring in extra people to help them look after the children. In that and many, many of their other demands, they were going to be incredibly disappointed. Um, although the WI reaches its peak in terms of numbers, half a million women in the 1950s, they find the post-war world is much more complicated than it seems. The welfare systems um, appear to have come in. The health service appears to have come in. They've demonstrated the need for this, and it's there. They take a long, long time to get any, to bring to fruition the campaigns which began in the Second World War. They passed an AGM resolution in 1943 for equal pay for equal work. That takes the next 30 years to bring to fruition. But they do continue campaigning. But there isn't the same need, I suppose, for some of the things at the local level as they once uh, had campaigned about. Um, the government tends to rely, I suppose, or no, there is an assumption that the government will provide things that once they had seen as providing through charity and through volunteers. Um, but they do campaign about things being more uniform, and they do take on the government. And I would argue that they've done that actually more so in the latter part of the 20th century than in this immediate post-war period. So they demand equal pay. They want Family allowances to be paid directly to the mother rather than to the father. 
that takes until the 1970s to come in. Um, equal pay, yes, they campaign with lots of mainstream feminist organizations for this. They were very early to identify the need for routine smear tests in terms of, of public health. They campaign very, very strongly for battered wives and the provision of a nationwide system of refuges. They had, um, in 75, an AGM resolution which stated that they believed in the principle of equality of opportunity and the legal status of men and women um, and, pledged it, and that they pledged themselves to work to achieve this. They caused for, in, in 1983, 1993, again concerned about battered wives, they called for a review of the provocation in the Homicide Act to include prolonged domestic violence. They, however, were living in a changing countryside. It, the social makeup of villages and rural areas shifted um, from the 1950s onwards. More and more women who came to live in the rural areas were actually commuting to elsewhere. They were working elsewhere. Many had private transport, and they had a choice of their social and educational opportunities. They weren't, like those in the 1920s, restricted to their village. There were also new organizations, parents, teachers associations, um, toddler groups, um, preschool playgroups associations, all of those things. And there was a tendency, perhaps, for women to meet in less formal groups, and I would argue more age-specific groups, if that makes sense, than whereas in the 20s and 30s they're going across age. Arguably, there wasn't really a place for women to meet. Um, there were also many places where women could meet in contemporary society that hadn't existed in the 20s. There were coffee shops, there were wine bars, there were households that were headed by women. So what you see in the period from about the 1960s onwards is a reduction in membership, a reduction that goes on right the way through to the end of the 1990s, where things change a bit again. First of all, uh, you have the Rystone and District WI's alternative calendar, which you may remember, which I'm still quite fond of, um, <laughs> which I think was very interesting, the portrayal of 11 members of the Institute aged between 45 and 65, undertaking various domestic tasks, jam making, um, various other things, um, all of them without any clothes on, it perhaps unintentionally, but definitely did, it challenged and stretched ideas about the domestic, about middle-aged housewives, it disturbed cultural assumptions about sexuality, about femininity, and about age. Popular culture was faced with a reminder that sex and sexuality was perhaps not merely the prerogative of the young and the thin. No wonder, then, that the calendar girls, who we see down the bottom there, um, became known as the women of the... Uh, uh, won a Women of the Year Award, and the Oldie Magazine, um, Oldie Exposure of the Year. As I get older, I get more uncomfortable about that one, because I don't see 45 to 65 as quite the oldie that they're presented as. <laughs> they, they continued to engage with difficult issues, and in 2008, with an approach more that was in the line with the English collection of prostitutes, perhaps, than um, some other organizations, two members of the Hampshire WI set off across the world to find out the best process um, for dealing with prostitution and brothels. They campaigned in the end to legalize brothels, having explored the conditions in numerous ones. They determined that prostitutes should work in safety, and they made recommendations. Their recommendations were based on the New Zealand system, where girls worked five days a week from 10 until 7 p.m., 
owned their brothel, which was run as a cooperative. I love this. It's just wonderful image. Um, now, I don't think this is the idea of cooperation that quite the forebearers, their forebearers in the 1920s had in mind. However, it is very much about a concern for women's safety, the conditions of their labor, um, which have been very much part of the WI movement for years and years. Perhaps more importantly, in an era when domesticity, or at least some elements of it, have become trendy, even sexy, um, Nigella's cookery books, large audience for Bake Off, all those things, the WI have begun to engage with more problematic terrain. They've begun to look from the 1990s onwards with issues around carers, um, the sort of unpaid or low-paid uh, domestic carers of the elderly particularly, as well as the, the, those uh, with physical and mental health issues. The conditions under which they work, the help they do or do not get from social services, their financial problems, they really made a big thing about it, they investigated it, they held conferences on the issues in 93, and it remains one of their key concerns and I would argue one of the increasing concerns for women in the UK, who whether at home or at work, are most frequently the carers of the elderly and the infirm. In an era when the sort of majority of domestic labor, whether paid or unpaid, has low status, remains exploitative, I suspect there is quite a lot still to be learnt from the WI's version of feminism and their determination to improve the lives of women by slowly chipping away at policies and practices of gender inequality. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.